Welcome. Hello. Good afternoon. Or should I say good rainy afternoon? Oh my gosh. Raining cats and dogs out here. You persevered through the rain and I am really grateful for you coming, even with it raining. So, okay. We are gathering here today for our 2022 Bill and Barbara Bennett Human Dignity and Fairness for All Lecture. Our program today features David Harmer, President and CEO of Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge and an outstanding advocate for the development of good citizens. The discussion will be moderated by our friend, Catherine Cart Ingle of SMU. I want to extend my deepest gratitude to Barbara and Bill Benick for their sponsorship of this event, their friendship, and their uh, excellent support of our council. And each year we gather at this program to promote civil discourse, equality, and human dignity. We at the council are extremely lucky to have your support and thank you very much for this. I'd also like to recognize Arlington Hall at Turtle Creek for hosting us this evening. It's always so great to be here and we appreciate the, the beautiful setting today. Uh, I'd also like to thank the council's institutional members, NEC Corporation of America and Lockheed Martin. American Airlines also deserves recognition for uh, their contributions in helping bring our speakers to us today. So thank you. Okay, so we have a couple of schools uh, in attendance today. Welcome and thank you to the students for being here. City Lab High School and Euless Junior High School, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming. Okay, so if you're not a member of our council yet, please join us. All of our membership options are on our website at dfwworld.org. And you can find all membership, all programming on our website. Do join us. It means a lot to us. I have the uh, distinct pleasure today to introduce some of my friends to some of my friends. Or some of my friends to a lot of my friends. Thank you for being here. Thank you for, I'm going to say it on behalf of Liz, for supporting the World Affairs Council, an organization which we all love and we so appreciate. I'm going to be brief in introducing our speakers today uh, who are friends of mine. David is a particular friend of mine. David's primary uh, fame in life is that he is the father-in-law of Michaela Skinner, who just got a silver medal at the Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, and not, not that it's a... Um, in gymnastics, vault in the gymnastics, yes. And uh, not to diminish that, Michaela's husband, uh, Jonas, who is Dave's son, is, uh, has been a frequent contestant and winner on American Ninja. So... If you're, if you're into that. <laughs> uh, so let me introduce David, who I've known for a long time. I'm on his board at the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge and know him to be a great leader. And uh, David comes by it naturally. His father, who was uh, in the California Senate, ended up being the lieutenant governor for Ronald Reagan. And David himself ran for the U.S. 
House of Representatives in California in what might have been the most contested election ever. Uh, when he went to bed the night of the election, he was 23 votes ahead out of 250,000 for the area he was in. And uh, when he woke up in the morning, he or I guess it was later, up to a month later, he was 40 votes behind, and he lost that election by 40 votes out of a quarter of a million on these absentee ballots and all. <laughs> Other than that, he's, uh, he's been a lawyer by training at Brigham Young University, a school which I went to myself, know and love, and um, he's been a lawyer at um, my... O'Magleby and Myers, which is a law firm on the East Coast, I think, and on the West Coast, actually. He was also the associate counsel for Chase Manhattan Bank and um, has done an awful lot of things uh, in the legal area and was uh, had several opportunities to go into NGO and uh, really nonprofit sort of work and ended up taking the position as the chairman of the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge, and he'll tell us about his interest in religious freedom and other freedoms and uh, how Valley Forge fits into that. I don't want to jump the gun on, on the, whatever it is, the 70 years, is a 70 year history of the Freedoms Foundation since uh, it was founded by President Eisenhower. So that's, uh, that's our speaker we'll hear from. And our moderator today is also a person I know and I'm not known well enough, but Kate is, uh, is a professor of history at SMU University. She was a speaker for the DFW Alliance for Religious Freedom last year and talked to us about American history, which is her specialty. Her talk last year had to do with the founders, the founding of the Constitution, founding of the Bill of Rights, how all that came together. So she's a perfect person to interview David about his opinions. Uh, Kate's got a long history here, and I just want to make some quick notes about her as being a fellow, an award-winning author and, of uh, books and articles, and uh, a fellow for, <coughs> with the American Council for Learned Societies, Center for Study of Religion at Princeton University, the American Philosophical Society, the McNeil Center for American, Early American Studies, and so forth. So she is a real pro in this area. She's got a PhD from the uh, University of Wisconsin. So with that, we'll ask David and Kate to take the stand and share with us their thoughts. Freddie, how's the sound? Working okay? Alrighty, well, quick shout out to Freddie for miking us, to Alfie for uh, all the logistics, uh, to Bethany for back office organization, of course to Liz for hosting us, and uh, especially to Bill and Barbara Benick. Um, I think most of you know them. Those of you who don't should. Uh, Barbara is of a certain number of years, but honestly, she's going on 17. Um, you couldn't get more effervescence from a high school cheerleader. And uh, Bill's schedule just exhausts me. Um, he uh, decided to sponsor this little gathering on the heels of hosting the uh, annual 
Religious Freedom Summit at SMU yesterday, which is no small undertaking. And while I realize that Mark Romney and some others here, Lisa Earl, I'm sure you're part of that, help him with it. Um, Bill is anxiously engaged in innumerable good causes, and I'm just, I feel lucky that Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge could be one of them. Uh, finally, to each of you, thanks for being here. What a pleasure. Um, I appreciate you braving the elements on this uh, uh, un-Texas-like day to be here to let uh, Kate and me chat with you a little bit. Uh, and, uh, oh, one more shout out. Uh, the high school students, wonderful to have you here. I hope this is worth your time. And uh, in the highly likely event that I don't say anything worth your while, cross-examine me afterward. We'll leave plenty of time for a Q&A, okay? Kate, you ready to rumble? Absolutely, absolutely. It is, it is a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to echo all those, all those thanks as well, and especially to, to the Bennex for organizing this wonderful event. Um, and, and David, I think I'd like to start just by asking you to talk a little bit about the Freedoms Foundation and what it does and what its goals are. Oh, well, thank you. Um, this will be all kinds of fun. So Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge was established in 1949. Um, I believe 73 years ago. So coming up on, is 75th a diamond anniversary? We, uh, we need to start planning for that. Um, it was founded by a group of concerned citizens, and some of you will recognize some of the names. Uh, E.F. Hutton, founder of the eponymous brokerage. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was in between gigs kind of at the time. He uh, had recently finished his service as Supreme Allied Commander, uh, defending the free world and had not yet been elected president. Uh, he was president of Columbia University, I think, at the time. But um, Ike felt, in the wake of World War II, really concerned about the future of freedom. Because it seemed to him that the American people were pretty clear about what they were against, Nazism, fascism, and so on, but not so clear about what they were for. What was it about the American way of life that was worth preserving, worth fighting to preserve, and what elements of the American way of life were so important that they justified our fighting to help preserve on behalf of others. And so Ike and, and his colleagues established Freedom's Foundation with the intent of helping Americans of all ages, but especially the rising generations, understand what it was about the ideals of the American founding as reflected in the founding documents that really mattered. And this lecture, of course, is the Bill and Barbara Bennett Dignity and Fairness for All lecture, and particular focus on those. Um, if there is any founding ideal, it is that which is articulated in the Declaration. Um, we don't say these words often enough. Would you mind reciting them along with me? We hold these truths to be that all men are created, that they are endowed by, with, that among these are, and then it gets a little tougher, but keep going if you can. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Well, we've got some principles there 
that were revolutionary in their time. I mean, not new. They go back to Locke and in some ways go back to Jerusalem and Athens and Rome, but certainly unprecedented in their application as the justification for breaking away from the mother country and establishing a, a new and independent nation and a new government. So the idea of natural rights, equal dignity, equality before the law, that regardless of uh, characteristics, whether they're inherent or exogenous, uh, inherited or chosen, by virtue of being a human being, you're equally entitled before the law to life and liberty and to pursue your own happiness. And that the whole purpose of government is to secure these rights to each of its citizens. So how do we do that? Well, Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge, during the school year, we bring students, mainly high school students from, from around the country, to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, the crucible of the American Revolution, for multi-day, immersive, intensive, experiential programs in the history and ideals and continuing relevance of the American founding. Then during the summer, we do something similar for K-12 teachers. We provide week-long, college-accredited, graduate-level professional development programs that look at the founding ideals both in the context of their own times and as manifest later throughout American history. And Kate, that was way too long. I'm going to try and be more concise. <laughs> Feel free to interrupt when I get, get going. And not at all. That was great. And, and you gave me the perfect seg segue, which is how have these ideals, how do you see these ideals manifest through history? Well, um, look, the, the founders, it, it is easy to criticize the founders for being imperfect. Newsflash, um, I haven't attained perfection, and I know relatively few humans who have. Uh, it's like criticizing a Model T for not being a Tesla. I mean, you know, the, the miracle is that it, it was created in the first place. And of course, I hope we've improved on the foundation that was laid. Well, that's American history. Um, was the American founding completed in 1776 with the promulgation of the Declaration of Independence and its articulation of the words we've just shared? Well, not really. Declaring independence was easy. Securing it took eight arduous years of the Revolutionary War, I guess six and a half roughly of, of fighting, but eight before you finally got the Treaty of Paris. So Revolutionary War is done. Is America founded? Well, not really. We're independent, but we're still kind of inchoate and disorganized and chaotic. So there's the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, uh, which numerous participants, not all of them really devout, characterized as miraculous, uh, providential even. Uh, so the Constitution. Is, is produced. And September 17, 1787, published to the world. Now is America founded? Well, no, it's just words on parchment. It's got to be ratified. And ratification is a hard-fought affair, very close in some jurisdictions. Uh, I mean, painfully close, uh, just the skinniest of margins. Uh, but the Constitution is ratified in 1770, sorry, 1788. New government takes, uh, takes effect in 1789. Okay, now are we done? Is America established? Well, it's kind of a work in progress. A lot of the newly independent states conditioned their ratification on uh, enactment of a Bill of Rights. 
And Congress responded under James Madison's leadership. And uh, fairly quickly, we got the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And as long as we're reciting, this is an important one. You know, let's start with some of, I mean, the most basic, the first freedoms. First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And we've got nine more that announce principles equally fundamental and important and vital. Okay, Bill of Rights. Now we're done, right? Well, look, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that those ideals were lovely ideals, but were they realized? Were they implemented in practice? You know, unfortunately, those rights, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the statement of principle, but we had a long way to go to apply those principles honestly and equally to all our people. And certainly, the great unfinished work of the founding um, was addressed by President Lincoln. Um, we had a ferocious civil war, um, the bloodiest battle of which was, uh, was fought at Gettysburg, um, after which Lincoln made the stakes really clear. Um, he said, we're engaged in this contest to determine whether a government intended to secure liberty and equality can long endure. Thankfully, it did. After the Civil War, we uh, enact the much needed 13th Amendment, prohibiting slavery or involuntary servitude, the 14th Amendment, extending equal protection of the laws to all, the 15th Amendment, prohibiting infringing on the right to vote on the basis of race or color or previous condition of servitude. Now we're done, right? No, I mean, the, the shameful, post-Reconstruction history of uh, Jim Crow uh, laws where state-sanctioned segregation oppressed uh, an entire class, a substantial portion of people, based on nothing more than their color, persisted for close to a century. 18, uh, sorry, 1963, let's fast forward a century. Martin Luther King from the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream, he says, a dream deeply rooted in America's founding. He says that when the founding fathers articulated those words in the Declaration of Independence, they were writing a promissory note, and it had come time to redeem the note, that it was time to apply those principles to those to whom they had been too long denied. The Civil Rights Act of 1864 finally, at long last, prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, creed, color, sex, national origin, in employment, in federally funded projects, in public accommodations. So the job's done, right? No, no, it's never done. Uh, th the genius of the founding is there was an ambition that I think was um, as close to perfect in its conception as anything humankind has ever come up with. But we're humans. We had a long way to go then, and I think we still have a ways to go to achieve those opportunities and ideals for all. Once again, 
you're letting me go on way too long. Please interrupt. <laughs> you're giving me ammunition. I'm, uh, so the, that was a wonderful walk through much of United States history and some of our most important events. And what I was thinking about as you were talking was this contrast between the Civil War, which is by far the bloodiest conflict the United States has ever had, more than a million casualties, and historians keep revising the number up, and, and then the Civil Rights Movement, which was by design, although not uniformly embraced as a peaceful movement. And so I'm wondering about, you know, as we move towards a more perfect union, as we strive to protect the, perfect this union, what are the tools that are available to us? How viable is it? I, personally, I wouldn't, as the parent of a, of a teenage son, I would not like massive war to come soon, right? So what are the tools that are acceptable to perfect the union? Is the Civil War an acceptable way to do that? What, is, what are the tools available to us? Oh, okay, that is a profound question. Um, uh, you know, like you, um, I hate the thought of sending any of my children into battle, no matter how meritorious the battle. Um, there certainly is such a thing as just war. All honor and credit to those who have fought in them so we don't have to. Um, could I take just a little sidebar here? And that's such an important question. It merits a really thoughtful answer. You know, I, I talked about Freedom's Foundation as a civic education organization. We have, we have this lovely 75-acre campus bordering Valley Forge National Historical Park. And so it's just a, a short walk through the woods from my office to General Washington's headquarters from that terrible winter of 1777 to 78 when the Continental Army came close to dissolving. Um, but on our campus, uh, the boys' dorm and girls' dorm and dining hall and, and offices and classroom buildings and so on occupy only a small part of the campus. The majority of the campus is set aside as the Medal of Honor Grove. The Congressional Medal of Honor is the nation's highest award for valor and action against an enemy force. It was established by President Lincoln during the Civil War in the history of the award, only about 3,500 of these have been awarded, <clears throat> the majority of them posthumously. In most cases, the act of valor for which someone is recognized is one that, that cost his or her own life. Um, by the way, about 40 million have served in our uniformed forces during that time. So if, if you do the math, you know, 3,500 out of 40 million. There are multiple zeros to the, the right of the decimal. It's a, it's a far more exclusive honor than, you know, serving in the United States Senate. It's, it's, this is a very elite group of, of individuals who've uh, made or offered the ultimate sacrifice. Why would we devote the majority of our campus to remembering those who risked their lives, and in most cases, paid with their lives to preserve our freedom. Um, now I'm getting back to your question. I think the very first thing we can do is exhibit gratitude. Um, I, whatever your system of belief, I, I hope you can agree with me that ingratitude is at the root of 
so much of what ails us, and, and gratitude, appreciation, and the humility that accompanies it might be at the root of so much that could heal us. In a time of really bitter partisan division, um, polarization, almost tribal um, in our societal behavior toward each other, I, I wonder if it might not be helpful to start not by wondering how we win the next battle and beat the other guys who are the enemy, but, but start thinking about our common heritage with a sense of appreciation and then our common citizenship with, I think, what ensues, which is a sense of respect. Um, it's so easy as citizens to demand our rights and to be hypersensitive to their violation. We're not quite as quick to demand of ourselves that we exercise the corresponding responsibilities, are we? But, but f- for every right of citizenship, there's, there's a corollary responsibility. If I want the ability to speak freely, I'd better stand up for the ability for my neighbor to do likewise, even if he says things with which I vehemently disagree, right? Because he's a sovereign citizen just as much as I am. He is is my equal before the law, not my inferior in any way. Um, So I would start addressing America's flaws, faults, problems from a place of respect for our common citizenship and appreciation for not just the ideals, but the mechanisms, the system of government that was designed to enable us to resolve even fundamental differences peacefully. Um, Thank heaven the Civil War was fought, but it never needs to be fought again. Um, If, you know, quoting Lincoln again, we uh, remember that we aren't enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Um, And uh, let's let the mystic chords of memory speak to the better angels of our nature. Um, how, uh, how prescient, how timeless that call was. Doesn't it apply now? So that's super powerful. Um, I kind of want to give a minute to just sort of think about that, mystic chords of memory, wonderful. Um, but it does raise a question for me, and I have to say this is a question that um, I face a lot as a, as a professor of history, and specifically of American history and the American founding, and I'll preface it further by saying I don't have an answer in my head because the students always seem to be trying to guess what's in my head. This is a genuine question. If we place history at the center of our shared narrative, how do we address the pain that comes from the fact that different people have different different feelings about that history? And that can run in a lot of different directions. It can be incredibly empowering. Um, you know, my, my great-grandmother um, cut her hair when she got the right to vote. Um, she had always had to have long hair and a long bob. And she found out she had the right to vote, and she walked down in rural Nebraska to, to her barber and got a haircut. We were talking about barbers being transformative. This was how she showed the world that her voice mattered. And then she voted every time she had the opportunity to, right? So that's a triumphal reaction to history. There are other people for whom their citizenship has, their their family citizenship has been denied for long periods of time or 
not for a while and then denied when we talk about Japanese Americans, or there are the, you know, the very powerful stories of people who want the heritage of the Confederacy honored and who feel that their ancestors' place in history needs more respect than it gets. So how do we build on our history to move forward when that history distributes pain unequally? Kate, that is the best question in four and a half years of leading Freedoms Foundation. <laughs> I've been invited to answer. I hope you keep asking that question, and I hope somebody smarter than I am writes multiple books um, addressing it. Let me offer a couple of thoughts. First of all, let's acknowledge honestly the, the genuine pain that is there. Maybe I can share a couple of, of personal experiences, and these are just shallowly illustrative, but um, 40 pounds ago when I was young and frisky, I worked as a whitewater rafting guide on the Colorado River and its, its tributaries. And um, it was a, a wonderful adventure for a couple of summers. And, um, you know, much of the Colorado Plateau is uh, sandstone and there are labyrinths of dry canyons that are very steep. Um, Often the canyon walls are extremely close. And uh, you know, once we had a little spare time and we were just jogging up a sand wash, and I mentioned that this looked you know, just like uh, you see in the old movies where the, uh, the Indians were rolling boulders down on, on the pioneers. And my buddy, Dario, said, too bad they didn't get more of them. And it really hit me like a stiletto because my people were those pioneers in the covered wagons, and his people were the aboriginal inhabitants up on top trying to defend their own, their own lands. And there was a little spark of realization. Oh, you know, I had really assumed my view of history was the view of history. There's another side, isn't there? Um, so let's acknowledge the legitimacy of um, those who find it hard to celebrate American history. I'd like to offer two examples, though, that I think can speak to all of us, to those who find in American history a source of uh, pain and, and maybe even sanction for discrimination, and those who find in it, you know, as I confess I do, hope and inspiration. The first is Frederick Douglass. Um, Frederick Douglass was an American slave. Uh, he learned um, with the cooperation of one of his owners, who at least for a time was kind, to read. And he was ravenous for learning. Um, uh, just a, a polymath, brilliant, largely self-educated, and, you know, of course, in many jurisdictions, it was illegal to teach a slave to read or a, for a slave to read. You know, that would, that would uh, enable rebellion, discontent. Um, like any human being, Douglas wanted to be free. You know, people, nobody wants to wake up in the morning and be told what to do. Um, but how much less if you're not entitled to the fruits of your own labors? Um, Douglas witnessed incomprehensible savagery. Um, he saw uh, a beloved aunt 
whipped to the verge of death. Uh, His wife's cousin was beaten to death, a lovely teenage young lady who made an innocent mistake. Um, He witnessed uh, a slave flee a whipping, ran to the stream to, I mean, his, his back was just lacerated. There was more of it open than covered with skin. You know, to, to escape the pain, I mean, what else would you do when he didn't obey the command to emerge was shot by the, uh, the overseer, uh, shot dead. Um, and, and Douglas describes his brains and, and body parts floating on the water and going downstream. Douglas himself recounts an experience in which he was too weak to stand. And his master came up and with a heavy boot kicked him in the side and ordered him to stand. Douglas stood but collapsed. The master kicked him a second time. Douglas stood and collapsed. This time the master took a hickory slat and with all his force whacked him on the head, opening such a wound that blood fell like a waterfall. So when Douglas finally attained his freedom, you can't fault him for saying, in such a land as this, I can have no patriotism. All this land means to me is the oppression of my family and three million of my people. So that hurt was genuine, and it was justified. He wasn't being hypersensitive. Who would react differently? But Douglas didn't stop there. He began speaking at meetings of the American Anti-Slavery Society, founded by William Lloyd Garrison, who contended that the Constitution was a pact with the devil because of the compromises it made, allowing the perpetuation of slavery. And Douglas at first agreed with Garrison that the Constitution and the nation it had established were irredeemably racist. And yet Douglas came to see the more he studied that the Constitution actually held the power for the liberation of his people. And he ended up saying, let us have the Constitution interpreted as it ought to be with its 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He called it a glorious liberty document. He went from asking what to the slave is the 4th of July to being as ardent a champion of the Constitution as the United States ever produced. You see, the the fault wasn't in the Constitution. It was in the people who were failing to create the more perfect union that had been adumbrated, outlined for them. Second experience, Hiroshi Miyamura. Um, Hiroshi was, maybe other than the name, the all-American boy. Uh, grew up in Gallup, New Mexico. His parents were both Japanese immigrants who fell head over heels in love with the United States of America. They love the wide open West. They love its egalitarian, it's genuinely egalitarian ethos. I don't know what experience they might have had in a big city on the coast, but in Gallup, New Mexico, they were pretty much treated as human beings, period. Uh, Hiroshi's... uh, Parents ran a little store. Uh, Hiroshi delivered newspapers and just joined the Boy Scouts. And uh, they were active in the local church, which was not segregated. And uh, when the United States uh, involuntarily entered World War II, when uh, 
Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Hiroshi was just old enough, and he volunteered to serve. And uh, his genuine, heartfelt, patriotic offer of service was declined because he was of Japanese descent. Well, that kind of hurt. Thankfully, his family wasn't interned. They were just far enough inland. But an awful lot of Japanese families were, including that of his future wife, forcibly removed from their homes and relocated to these nasty camps in places like Topaz, Utah, in the middle of the salt flats. Um, Finally, a couple years into the war, policies were amended so those of Japanese descent could serve. But the orders establishing the units in which they could serve also established in black and white that only whites could serve as the officers. Hiroshi Miyamura volunteered regardless, served honorably uh, in World War II, came home, uh, met his wife, whose family had finally been released from the internment camp. Um, And uh, the Korean War came along, and Hiroshi was recalled to active duty. In Korea, uh, he was a squadron leader. Um, His unit was under heavy fire. Hiroshi, with just superhuman courage, uh, ordered his men to retreat to safety, and he single-handedly covered for them, um, using machine guns until they were out of ammo, then grabbing another from soldiers who lay wounded or dying on the battlefield. Um, made his way to uh, another redoubt, threw grenades until they were gone. Um, Witnesses estimated that he killed 50 to 100 enemy soldiers to allow his men the ability to retreat to safety. He finally fainted from loss of blood, was captured, was marched into POW camps where he lost half his body weight uh, as he was tortured and inadequately nourished over the next couple of years. Now, uh, if anybody had a right to give the middle finger to the American flag, it was Hiroshi Miyamura, who'd been prohibited from serving and then allowed to serve but only under whites, who married a woman who'd been imprisoned for nothing more than her ancestry um, and uh, who had been mistreated even in the Korean conflict simply because of of his race. Um, Hiroshi Miyamura is one of the recipients of the Medal of Honor, whose name is uh, on a ground plaque at Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge. I heard Hiroshi Miyamura, the last living survivor, uh, the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from the Korean War, tell a group of teachers how he felt when he emerged from uh, his imprisonment and saw the stars and stripes in the breeze. He cried. He said it was the most beautiful sight he'd ever seen. This, he said, is the greatest country in the world. I'm so grateful to be a citizen of the United States of America. There are good people of all races, not just blacks and Asians, but indigenous, who suffered the most repugnant injustice under this nation's constitutional laws, who've come to realize that the fault is not in 
the founding ideals or the founding documents, but the failure of their fellow citizens to live up to them, and who've seen in those ideals and those documents the instruments, the tools to achieve a more perfect union and establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility. So those are such powerful stories, and those are individuals who had very specific tools, well, Douglas made his tools, right, but um, available to them. What tools do you see available to our citizens today who want to rebuild national unity? And I really like the way you started saying partisan and then moved to tribal, that you know the, the divisions we face today I don't think are necessarily contained within the party system. They're, um, they're in fact probably crashing the party system. And so those divisions are running deeper and running in different ways. How should we use the tools of our government or the tools provided or protected by our government to, to heal those divisions, to perfect the union that we're in? Uh, another phenomenal question. And let's start by um, acknowledging the unfortunate reality that Kate asks what tools and implying that there are tools. And she's a professor of history. I mean, she knows very well what those tools are. And, and we've got some idea of them. Um, but I mean, no offense to the exceptional students who are with us, but there really is a generational divide. Um, the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation, uh, wait, let me take a step back. If you are not born in the United States, but you want to become a naturalized citizen, you need to take the US citizenship test. There are, it is my understanding, 100 questions, but an immigration examiner will typically choose just 10 or 15 or 20. And it's a multiple choice test, and it covers you know, the American founding and history and civics, and um, it's, they're not gotcha questions. I think it's you know, pitched on what would reasonably be a, a high school level. Give me some guesses of immigrants taking the US citizenship exam. How many pass on their first try? What percentage? Mark's very close. Yeah, Mark said 91, and it's 91, 92, right in there. So the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation thought, let's administer it to existing citizens. Suppose we just distribute the test among a random sampling and see how they do. Any guesses? It was about a third. So uh, think of it. Uh, an immigrant who wants to become a citizen, on average, knows three times as much about what tools are available as we do. May I observe that there really is a crisis of civic education? Um, the Pew Trusts do excellent nonpartisan polling, very reputable. Um, they recently did a, you know, a broad cross-section of, uh, of the citizenry. They, they, they looked at basic knowledge of basic civics. Uh, they were using, I think, a variation of the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress tests in, in civics. Um, so 
you know, if you, if you take the results overall, they're not impressive, but not catastrophic. But those of you who know anything about polling, you look at the cross-tabulations. You know, how do different demographics perform? Well, darned if those of retirement age, 65 plus, were about three-quarters proficient in civics, whereas those under age, they chose 45, 19% were proficient. Few so of them over 45. There, <laughs> but there, there really is a generational divide. It's not that there's historical amnesia. You can't forget what you didn't know in the first place. Um, the retiring generation, it is objectively fair to say, knows and appreciates American history. The rising generation doesn't, and it's not their fault. They haven't been taught. So let's start by making sure that people know what tools are available to influence policy at the local and state and national level. I think it's so easy to default. I hate Trump or I hate Biden. So what? Go to your local school board meeting. Go to the city council. You'll be amazed how few people are there ordinarily. You know, show up at your neighborhood association meeting. The officers are ordinarily the only people present. There's so much that can be done. One of the great blessings of the Constitution is it didn't establish a unitary government with police power. You know, the founders took human nature as they found it. They know that we're us, right? We're human, subject to all kinds of foibles. And they knew that power tends to corrupt. So, first of all, they delegate only certain limited, enumerated, defined powers to the federal government in the first place, leaving all the rest to the states or the people. So there's that beautiful federal system where most of what affects us on a day-to-day -day basis, thankfully, is decided at levels to you much closer than Washington, D.C., maybe even closer than Austin, maybe even closer than City Hall. And second, once they had delegated those enumerated powers to the federal government, they separated them among three branches. And uh, then they further separated the first branch uh, into two houses. And uh, they removed each branch a little further from immediate popular control. All of this was to create space for us to deliberate, not to thwart the will of the people, just to temper and bridle it so it couldn't be used to oppress minorities or even individuals, at least ideally. So what tools are available? Well, let's start with the really important tool of education and make sure that we, uh, we let our fellow citizens, especially younger fellow citizens, know all the tools that are available to them. And then let's not just encourage people to vote. Let's encourage people to vote in an informed way. And actually, before they wait to vote, let's encourage them to show up at a meeting, write a legislator, write an op-ed, exercise those wonderful freedoms that are still theirs in the First Amendment. And maybe let's be good neighbors, too. Um, in my case, it was, look, it's no secret from my biography that I grew up in a conservative Republican family, but we raised our kids in the San Francisco Bay Area. So most of my colleagues and uh, you know, most of our, our friends and neighbors were way to my left. Uh, darned if they didn't love the country too. Darned if they didn't see 
all kinds of merit in the Constitution. Um, we are self-selecting into um, distinct neighborhoods or affiliations. That means we need to exert a little more effort, perhaps, to get beyond our own usual circles. This is a great time to offer a shout out to the Bennicks again. Bill and Barbara have done such a wonderful job with the DFW Alliance for Religious Freedom and ensuring that every faith, including no faith, from the entire Metroplex is equally represented and welcome and heard. Um, we all ought to be engaged in groups like that. Thank you, and, and I think that's a, a great place to transition with both a call to action and a, and a, and a thank you to the um, generosity that makes this conversation possible. Um, we're privileged to have not just have students with us, but have students who have given us questions in advance. So we're going to shift to the Q&A, and I'll start with a few questions here from, um, from the students. And I mangle all people's names, so I'm sorry as I, as I mangle these. Um, I'm going to start with Zimina Negret. Is, are you here? Yes? OK, this is uh, your, uh, her question. Um, and I, th I, was, I almost jumped in with this question earlier because you phrased this so perfectly for the conversation we've been having. How does human dignity relate to freedom? Oh, how does human dignity relate to freedom? If I understand the word dignity, um, the root is digno uh, from Latin, worthy, um, meritorious. Um, Dignity implies not that uh, your rights are granted or bequeathed. They're inherent. They belong to you. So when the Bennicks promote equal dignity and fairness for all, they're reminding us that all men, and men, of course, was a generic term meaning human beings, all people are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. Dignity means those rights aren't conferred, granted, allowed, tolerated. They're yours. And you, and you, and you, and I. Regardless, it doesn't matter if you know, your progenitors were on the Mayflower or if they were naturalized last night. It doesn't matter if you're a US citizen or someone suffering in Ukraine or Venezuela. By virtue of being human, those principles in the Declaration aren't limited to those fortunate enough to be Americans then or now. They're universal. Um, I, you know, I, I, I meant to uh, quote, President Calvin Coolidge was president when the Declaration of Independence celebrated its 150th anniversary. President Coolidge said, there is about the Declaration a finality that is exceedingly restful. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their authority from the sovereign people, then that is final. And there really can't be historically, progress beyond those. Those who would undermine those ideals or criticize them risk taking us backward. Backward time where 
it wasn't believed that all were created equal, when it wasn't believed that rights were inherent. So human dignity is not just the presupposition, the prerequisite. I mean, this goes so far beyond politics. It, it, it's, it's existential. Um, you as a human being are infinitely valuable. You as an individual. Your rights aren't contingent on anyone else's good graces. They belong to you. Claim them. So our, question, our second question here is from Princess Blanton. There we go. And Princess asks, how do we picture freedom? How does it look in the real world? Um, Princess, I would, I would suggest sometimes it's easiest to define what something is by first seeing what it isn't. Um, I had a student recently ask, we were talking about just the, the horrors of the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, where innocent people are being, um, you know, slaughtered um, just because one autocrat wants to claim their land as his territory. And the question came up, how does this one evil man manage to impose his will when virtually the whole world is allied against him and a lot of his own people are pretty uncomfortable with it? My response was, um, the remarkable thing isn't what one tyrant does in the absence of freedom. It's that there isn't more of that going on. Uh, again, the, the, the founders of this nation recognize that, you know, humans are prone to certain weaknesses. And one of them is, We'd all like to think that if we had enough power, we could do more good. But experience shows that the opposite happens. The more power we get, the more we tend to run roughshod over the rights of other people. And that's why we're so blessed to live in a civilization where governmental powers are circumscribed and limited and separated and there are competing interests. Um, Look, look at, uh, in, in Ukraine, how many composers and dancers and musicians and artists have left their music or their paint or their studio to volunteer to fight. I mentioned earlier that nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be bossed around and told what to do in order to work for the benefit of another. I think that's just a universal human quality. Freedom is being able to wake up in the morning and it's your life. You choose where you go. Um, I would say the, the risk to freedom, it's so common for a charismatic, um, autocrat or would-be autocrat to blame someone else for your problems and say, you give me enough power, I'll beat them for you. Be really careful when you hear that from whatever party or whatever ideology because what tends to happen next is uh, that oppression isn't confined to its initial targets. 
And uh, those promised benefits never really come. But that power once yielded is hard to get back. I think we've got time for a couple audience questions. I want to play the devil's advocate for a minute. Yes, sir. It's, it says all men. It doesn't say men and women. It says all men. It doesn't include slaves. They're counting the three-fifths when you were reporting your census in the 1790. It says all men. Does not include Indians, indigenous people. Can you clarify what this is all about? Sure. In the time of the Declaration, um, referring all men was intended to refer to all human beings. And the founders certainly understood it that way. Uh, so did um, the uh, members of the groups to which you refer. Uh, for example, it was not too long after the uh, promulgation of the Declaration that one of my heroes, Mumbet, a, uh, a black slave in Massachusetts, went to court to win her freedom, citing that very passage from the Declaration of Independence as rendering slavery untenable. The court could not disagree with her reasoning and awarded her her freedom. Um, now, of course I acknowledge, acknowledge that she is sadly the exception and not the rule. But even in the time of the founding, there were indigenous inhabitants and uh, free blacks and enslaved blacks and women who claimed that the phrase, all men are created equal, applied to them and one acknowledgement of that fact in courts or legislatures. Now, it took uh, most of the country quite a bit longer to let women vote. It took most of the country far too long to truly treat all people as equals, regardless of race, color, national origin, ethnicity, and yet, Washington himself, in that wonderful letter to the Turo Synagogue, said that in this nation, we give bigotry no sanction. Now, he may have been speaking a little better than we were, but the principle he enunciated is true. There is no sanction in the Declaration for bigotry. And what sanction there is in the Constitution I, you know, I mentioned another of my heroes, Frederick Douglass, earlier. He noted that the framers were too embarrassed to even use the word slavery. They were talking about it, but they employed these elaborate circumlocutions. You know, the, the admission or importation of such persons as the various states shall see fit to admit is a pretty convoluted way of talking about the slave trade. But not even the Southerners wanted to acknowledge slavery in a document that was about how to administer their, uh, their government as, as free people. So uh, yes, it is correct that the Constitution counted enslaved persons as three-fifths for purposes of the census. It prohibited Congress from uh, banning the slave trade before 1808. Uh, 
Um, uh, and yet, you know, as Douglas came to see, the framers had done what they could to put slavery on the path to extinction. There was, let's acknowledge, a nation founded on this continent in defense of slavery, but that was the Confederate, not the United States of America. Um, you look at the South Carolina Declaration of Secession, you look at the uh, speeches of Jefferson Davis, or especially Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens in his cornerstone speech, he explicitly repudiated the founding ideals. He said the founders thought all men were equal, but they were wrong. We know that the white race is superior, and we're founded on that truth, as plain as can be. Whereas Lincoln reduced the Civil War to the simplest of, uh, of uh, mechanisms. He said one side thought slavery was a positive good and should be extended. The other side thought it was an evil and ought to be eliminated. That is the whole meaning of the contest. Thank you. Time for one last question. Oops, sorry. I've got the mic coming to you. It's often said, and you may have even said earlier uh, this afternoon, that America is the greatest nation in the world. Um, I am tremendously grateful for this nation. I can enumerate many things that are great about this nation, but I don't know enough about other nations and histories to know which of our rights and freedoms and benefits are unique to us. And I think having that knowledge would help me to have deeper gratitude. What, what tools or resources might you recommend to somebody like me uh, to better understand what it is about our freedoms that are, and, 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 and benefits and blessings that are unique to this country? I'd recommend Kate. Um, <laughs> the more time you can spend with professors of history, uh, whether in their classrooms or in their writings. Um, you know, it is a big, wide, wonderful world. And uh, my, my, uh, my wife is Argentine by birth. Um, I'm the oldest of 10 kids, and most of us served missions for our church in various countries around the world. Um, we have, you know, our, our dearest friends include not just people of other national origins, but of other nationalities. Um, I, I personally believe that God loves all his children uh, equally. Um, I try to, you know, some are easier than others. Um, but um, I don't think it would be so easy for me to admire the ideals of the American founding if they were parochial, if they were uh, tribal or uh, limited. What inspires about them is their universality. Um, and I believe that the Constitution is a glorious banner whose principles, to the extent they are applied by any government, will bless any people. Um, I, um, you know, Alexander Pope observed that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but the more knowledge, um, the more your capacity to appreciate 
um, both the good elsewhere, um, but the good we have to uh, share and preserve so it can be shared. Thank you. Let's thank our speaker and our generous And our moderator. We'll hear one final note from Bill here. I just wanted to make one comment I forgot to make earlier. So uh, I'm involved with an organization that created something called the Puente de Leste Accord, which is a refresh of the UN Declaration of Human Rights on its 70th anniversary a couple of years ago. And uh, there's a book that was published on that, which is a beautiful, like a coffee table book with photographs of what human dignity looks like around the world and an explanation of what human dignity is and it answers a lot of these questions. I have copies of that, which I forgot, in my car and can give to every one of you before you leave here today. So if you just come up to the front on the way out, I get out first and I'll get those for you. Wow, thank you, Bill, very much for that. And I want to thank David and Kate here for a remarkable conversation. Um, for those of you in the room that do not know me, my name is Kirsten Cullenberg. I am Director of Programs here at the World Affairs Council. I see many familiar faces in the room, and I want to take a moment again to thank our students for taking the time to come out today. Thank you to Bill and Barbara Benick, and thank you to our speakers. Uh, wonderful conversation. I have a quick... Uh, uh, a small token of our appreciation for each of you that I'll, I'll present to you now. And then uh, as we wrap up today, we'll have our students come to the front and take a photo with the both of you uh, before uh, we can you know, gather. And any other questions that you have, don't hesitate. Thank you all so much for coming out today. I hope you enjoyed your lunches, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. <laughs>